Welcome to the Dr. Dad's Podcast, where a naturopath and chiropractor come together each week to share lifestyle medicine, health advice, and inspiring interviews with some of the top experts in health and wellness, bringing you the latest in nutrition, exercise, ancient healing, toxins and detox, your microbiome, mindset, hormones, brain, and much more. Stay tuned. We're going to teach you how to experience growth daily. Hey everybody, this is Dr. David Wardy coming at you today. Dr. Nicholas, what's going on, my brother? Another day in paradise, buddy. And you know what? You guys don't know what this is, but we've got white fluffy stuff coming down in <laughs> big, big waves right now. It's, hey, called, so, it's called snow. It's supposed to snow here. Like, really? Yeah, but that doesn't happen. They, they yeah. kind of, uh, it's one of those guesses all the time. And usually when they guess wrong, then it snows. So. Right. Well, if, if you guys do get snow, I want, to, I want a photo because I don't I believe you. I don't think you guys get snow down there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited, man. Today, I've got a good friend of mine in-house with me. We're doing actually a little bit of this interview today where I've got him next to me. And um, today's guest, he's a good friend of mine. He comes in. He, he's a huge advocate for wellness and health. And we're going to get to really pick his brain today about some really fun topics. And he's going to share his, his greatness, his knowledge, and his wisdom with us. And um, I'm, I'm just pumped, man. So I want to talk a little bit about him, give him his bio real quick, give his bio, and then uh, we'll get into it. So today we're talking to Dr. Osvaldo Gaetan. He's been a child psychiatrist in El Paso for over 12 years. He graduated from UTEP in 1989 with honors and a bachelor's in science. Uh, he received his MD, PhD in 1999 from the University of Texas Medical School at Houston with his PhD in neuropharmacology and completed his residency in adult psychiatry in 2003 from Emory University in Atlanta. Uh, he's also completed a three-year research-focused child fellowship from Emory in 2006. He's been published as a first author in over 20 peer-reviewed journals, and he's done many presentations locally and nationally. Dr. Gaetan is committed to his patients and his community, and he is currently the medical director for the Child Adolescent Unit at El Paso Behavioral Health. He has also helped to establish the El Paso Child Mental Health Fund over the last few years as an effort to improve the mental health care uh, for our children in the community. So if that doesn't tell you how awesome this individual is, I don't know what will. So well, I didn't, I didn't realize we were talking to such a smart dude on, on the show. This is amazing. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if they say that, that smart people are like, wow, you're really ambitious to have gotten an MD-PhD and everything. And I hate to break the bubble, burst the bubble, but then I tell them, I said, well, in reality, they were paying me to do it. So it was like a job to be a student. And when I was told you could be a job, you, you could go to school as a job and get some money for it. Because where do I sign up? And also the more important thing, <laughs> how to avoid growing up for like a decade. There you go. So that was the biggest thing. It's like, well, I can stay in school and avoid, you know, all kinds of things or responsibilities <laughs> and adults. Sure. So you want to call me smart for doing that? Fine. But you well, know, not, that is smart. That is very smart. <laughs> so, Doc, I want to just get going. Uh, really share a little bit of your story and uh, kind of where you are in your approach and your practice right now. And just give us a little cliff notes version of that real quick. Okay. Well, I, I originally started off as a research scientist. So I was always fascinated by the way the brain works. You know, the basic questions of our life. What is the mind? Why am I here? All these kinds of things. And I recognize that most of our everyday functioning, we have a body and we have our mind which dominates most of our experience. So I was really interested in breaking down how the brain works, what creates the mind. And from growing up, I was also very fascinated by the concepts of the effect of early trauma on, you know, on people and on individuals and what, ends up, what ended up you know, becoming my interest in child psychiatry eventually is because of those kinds of burning questions uh, as to how a kid's brain develops what differentiates one person being able to make it and succeed versus another who does not and ends up with psychiatric illnesses. These are all the basic questions that I had with research. And then once I started doing more research in neuropharmacology and neurobiology, I realized that the part of the MD training that pertained most to the way I looked at life was in psychiatry. A lot of people don't like psychiatry because it's kind of nebulous and gray. Um, for example, my own dad doesn't believe in psychiatry. You know, I'm first generation Mexican-American. My dad's from Mexico. So he grew up with that mentality. You know, people, or, or as my mom puts it, who has the luxury to be depressed? 
when you're really, really poor. You know, who has that luxury of saying I'm depressed or I have schizophrenia. I don't care if you have schizophrenia, get out there with, and, with a shovel and, you know, dig a hole. You know, later on you can talk to yourself. And that's the way a lot of cultures take care of psychiatric illnesses. Uh, and, you know, and they don't have time or luxuries. But here in the United States, we seem to have a lot of luxury of adolescence. We have a lot of luxury of wealth. And so we have things that my dad, my own dad doesn't believe in. He doesn't believe in depression. So I come from a culture that even calls into question whether psychiatry exists or not. And, but for me, that kind of excited me because it was the unknown and it's nebulous and gray. And what I learned from life is that there is no black and white answer. Almost everything is gray. And our job is just to try to get to understand it. And so that drove me towards psychiatry. And then I eventually, you know, to make a long story short, I was getting all this education and research at one of the major research centers at Emory uh, under one of the better known researchers. And I had succeeded as far as the American uh, view of life, but my dad was not doing well. So I decided to come back and spend a year in kind of group because I wasn't, something was missing. I wasn't happy uh, having reached the ultimate prize. And once I came back to spend time with my dad who didn't want to do dialysis and looked like he was dying. So I said, I come back here, regroup, stay here for a year, came back to El Paso. And I'd forgotten that when I left, I thought maybe the best thing for me to do is to come back and help the community and bring what I learned back. And so I ended up here in El Paso in an inpatient unit where I see the worst of the worst cases where people are in there because they either tried to kill themselves, want to kill other people, have lost contact with reality, so schizophrenia, heavy substance abuse issues, lots of trauma, um, severe ADHD, fetal alcohol syndrome, severe anxiety, depression, everything. So I get to see the worst of the worst cases and I get to utilize all of my training from research to therapy to everything. So it's been really rewarding coming back here to El Paso. And I, it seems like I got a job that was created for me. Hmm. That's amazing. I'm so curious with uh, the growing up philosophy of, you know, you just kind of put your head down and get through it and depression doesn't exist. Has that served you in any way in helping certain individuals looking through well, that you know, lens? Yeah, it's interesting because looking through the lens of psychiatry does not exist is I think actually I think the biggest challenge that I have every day, especially because I'm dealing with teenagers you have to understand with teenagers, I'm sure you guys have had enough people come in and, you know, they obviously have some misalignment and they keep on doing something over and over again, but kids think they're indestructible and there's nothing wrong with them. So even though you can physically show them what is wrong, they still don't accept that something's, that they have to do, do something or that life really affects them. Somebody with diabetes that you can actually show them, look, here's your blood sugar. You show them in the chemical strip your blood sugar's out of control, you still can't get them to take their own medications or believe most of the time that they're sick. So if something that concrete has very little impact on them, then something as nebulous as a psychiatric illness has a lot less you know, chance to stick because kids are like, it's not my problem, it's everybody else's problem. You know, mm. I'm not the one that's having an issue. My parents just don't understand me. My school doesn't understand me. I'm getting bullied. Everything is outside, outside. And they just see their behavior as normal. And why, do, why are you saying that I'm crazy? That's the terminology, right? Mm -hmm. All the kids are like, I don't, I'm not crazy. Why in the world do I have to be here? So one of my biggest struggles is just getting them to understand how I can help them. How in the world my training, my way of looking at things can help them. And one of the biggest things is just the basic question, well, what is a psychiatric illness? Yeah. Well, let's start there. I mean, you talked a little bit before the show about how do you frame that so that people understand what is an actual psychiatric illness. Can you speak to that a little bit real quick? Yeah, I, I think that's, if we have a common framework with which we're all discussing the behavior of the person, because, you know, a person is more than just his behavior. And it's important to, that people understand that I'm not trying to pathologize them at all when I'm approaching the whole issue of psychiatric illnesses. So it's important to understand and think about psychiatric illness, I think, in the following way. That as if you happen to believe in evolution, if you're very religious and don't, then think about it that God 
created us in a certain way. And one of the ways in which he created us, he gave us a lot of choices in behavior and a lot of ways in which we can react to the world. So there's certainly a bell curve of behavior that is considered normal, within normal for practically everybody, right? And behaviors are appropriate in different situations. So if you're in the jungle and you run into a dinosaur, it's appropriate to be scared and anxious and run or fight or be angry. But if you're doing that in the middle of your dinner table, then all of a sudden that's not the appropriate place to do it. So if you start thinking of psychiatric illnesses as nothing but normal behaviors done an abnormal amount of time with an abnormal frequency, or maybe with an abnormal intensity, or in a place where you're not supposed to be doing it, in an abnormal uh, situation, then that is the basics of psychiatric illnesses, that they're just normal behaviors that have lost kind of their, the things that kept them within the normal realm, and that there are systems that are kind of maybe out of control. And then the final aspect of it is how do they affect you? Do they affect your functioning either in your personal life, your physical life, your relationships at work? They have to affect you. Because if you happen to be a person who has, I was giving the example to David earlier, uh, that if you have OCD, but you're an accountant, do you really need to be on medications? Chances are you don't. As a matter of fact, if you got on medications, it would impede your productivity. And you wouldn't be as good an accountant, mm. right? So those are the kinds of things that usually I try to get people to understand that don't think of yourself as sick. Don't think of yourself. You're separate from your behaviors and your choices and all these kinds of things. You, the individual, have to learn to look at the behaviors you're exhibiting and saying, are these out of control? Am I doing them in the right place? Am I too obsessed with these behaviors? And what can I do to change these behaviors that will allow me to function in life? And what, which of these behaviors are actually getting in the way of me being able to function? Hmm. You know what? You can tell the intelligence of someone, to be honest, based on the simplicity which you deliver information. Like that was so easy to understand and so important, that message. So I appreciate you, like, I mean, your years of study, being able to take complex understanding and be able to put it in a really chewable way for for majority of people that, to receive it because it i can just imagine the the young kids that are in front of you they go oh yeah i can relate to that i see how i over exemplify a behavior in a situation that doesn't warrant me to do that and so now i can start to ask those questions so how do you so you brought some awareness into a conversation for for let's say young old doesn't matter where does when did I guess, what's the next step in responsibility? When do they, what's a typical segue into them taking ownership of that? Yeah, that's an interesting, because it's kind of like what you're asking is eventually, uh, well, when, how do people get to the point where they have to recognize that their behaviors are becoming what we would quote unquote call a disorder or a psychiatric illness that requires any kind of intervention, right? Mm. And to me, I bring it down to functionality. I sit there and say, well, I see that you're using aggression. Let's say aggression, okay? I see that you're using aggression as a way to control your environment. Because that's the way these kids are communicating to you. They're six, seven years old. So for a six and seven-year-old, I tell them very simply, I say, I see that you're using hitting people as a way to get what you want or to avoid doing things you don't really want to do. I, and then I sit there and I ask them a very simple question. How is that working for you? Mm. You know, and then really, you can go all the way up to an adult. How is that working for you to be scared all the time, to be anxious all the time, uh, or to be drinking all the time, or to be, you know, whatever it is that they're doing? Say, how's that working you to get what you want? Because if they were getting what they wanted and were happy with what they wanted, they wouldn't be seeing us in the hospital. They wouldn't be seeking help. Uh, from a dietitian, from a chiropractor, from a therapist. They wouldn't be seeking any kind of help. Because you know, most people could go on eating ice cream and everything else the rest of their lives and didn't have diabetes, weight problems, would they ever go see a doctor? Mm -hmm. So it's the exact same question, right? Is how is it working for you? So you first have to get to admit that, and in the hospital it's easy. Why are you here? Mm -hmm. 
if everything was going fine, because my favorite one is the teenagers who come in and say, I did nothing wrong. And I said, wow, that's pretty interesting. So what you're telling me is you're sitting at home, minding your own business, not bothering anybody, and your parents just decided to come in, call the police, come get you, and drag you all the way over here for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to hear someone try to get out of that one. <laughs> And it's really hard to get them to admit that there is something going on, but that's the first step. And that's the first challenge in psychiatry is first to get people to acknowledge what psychiatry is, not to pathologize it, that it's something that we could all be susceptible to, and then sit there and say, how is it affecting your life? And if it's affecting your life to the point where you're hurting other people, you're hurting yourself, you're not, but we can even take it down even simpler than that. Your grades aren't good enough if you're a kid. You're, you're not performing at work if you're an adult as well as you would like. Your loved ones are worried about you. These kinds of little things that somebody else is noticing something is going on with you, that's the first thing where you, it's the first step that you have to ask yourself. And then, then you can talk about, let's identify what these things in these issues, which behaviors are the ones that are affecting you the most. Then we can come up with a plan, a treatment plan as to how to get better. Mm-hmm. Sounds similar to what you guys do in a lot of ways, right? Pretty much, yeah. And there has to be that acknowledgement for sure. Because then there's just no other conversation I have. A patient just can't get there, right? And you have to get that to yeah. take place. Um, so, Nick, if you don't have any other questions, I want to segue into something else. So, one thing that I would like to talk a little bit about, and this is just personal experience from my life, is, you know, I grew up in a household with a brother that had major behavioral health issues, ADD, ADHD. Uh, you know, my common thing that I, and I would say about my brother, because it was just very disruptive growing up, watching him struggle uh, with his behavior and how it affected his ability to function in school and his social life and just in society as a whole. And self-esteem. Is, yeah, and self-esteem. You know, my brother, we'd always say something to the degree of, he doesn't have that governor like most people have of like knowing like you just don't do that. Like most people can hit the governor and say, (laughs) that's not a good idea. And my brother lived in this very impulsive realm of reality to where it's just kind of like anything goes. And so my childhood was watching my brother constantly fall, learning from his mistakes of like everything you don't do and watching my parents go in and out from psychiatrist to this person's office just trying to find answers to putting them on medications and trying to run that route and then coming off the medications so what i'd like to if you don't mind talking about this is you do see add adhd Mm -hmm. cases and you i have heard you speak about it before can you talk a little bit about what you see and how you know whether that's really the problem and is drug intervention needed. And sometimes maybe it's not like you're saying, maybe it's just something more of a emotional trauma that the child's dealing with that needs to be corrected at home. And then I'd also like you to talk a little bit about your beliefs and importance of like eating well and exercising and all these other things. Cause you're a big believer in like, you got to do all the basics sure. as well. Sure. Um, that's a lot of interesting things to think about. I'm glad you brought up ADHD because talk about one of the fields of psychiatry, especially child psychiatry that has come under attack the most, right? And it's actually rightfully so, I would think, because ADHD is an actual phenomenon that affects people in life. But it's not, I don't really think of it as a psychiatric illness, interestingly enough, as you've heard me say before. I think of it as a, neurological condition that that's just the way the brain is wired it's wired a little bit different than the general populations in particular to one thing how you respond to stimulants that's why i say it's neurologically based because you can't fake that so either somebody has adhd or they do not it's kind of like diabetes you can measure in a lot of in a lot of situations you can measure blood glucose, and you can figure out whether or not what's going on with their insulin. You can measure things. In psychiatry, we have very few of those things. And that's why I think ADHD doesn't really fit in psychiatry. It's more neurology because 
If you have ADHD and I give you a stimulant and I correctly diagnose you, it's one of the only miracle cures we have in psychiatry where you just look like a genius or any pediatrician can look like a genius because you get the right dose, uh, 70%, like 90% of the time you don't have a side effect. And the first time you use it, 70% of people will respond to it correctly. And all of a sudden it's like a different child that you have. But the big key is that you calm down. People who don't have ADHD, if I give you a stimulant, what if, if you guys don't have ADHD, what happens when you take two or three cups of coffee? Buzzing. You, you're buzzing, right? You feel mm. a little jittery. <clears throat> if you, you can think of stimulants as a bunch of cups of coffee, and I actually tell parents all the time, if you're not really sure that your child has uh, ADHD, why don't you just give them some coffee at home and see if that calms them down or wires them up. And if it calms them down, your child might have ADHD. But, you know, something like that, just a simple test like that. And if you calm down, then you have this neurological con condition called ADHD. But there's really nothing wrong with ADHD itself. There's a lot of books out there like the hunter-gatherer ideas back in the 70s that these are just leftover ideas that ADHD helped you if you were, and that's why there's more males with ADHD combined type and hyperactive than there are females because they were the hunters. So when you're out there, it helps you to be impulsive. When you're out there in the jungles, that's not the time to think things through. When you're out there and a dinosaur's coming out after you, that's not the time to wonder if this is the one vegetarian dinosaur in the whole jungle. It's time to run, right? And the one who runs the slowest is the one that gets eaten. Yeah. So therefore, you select it for people who are impulsive. So therefore, you can see how in situations, impulsivity, which is a psychiatric behavioral paradigm, can be very beneficial in certain situations, in the correct situations, but then are not in other situations. So when... When you used to work in the fields, when you used to work on the farm, ADHD was no big deal. But as soon as you started trying to get somebody to sit down for 45 minutes to listen to a subject they don't like. So in reality, ADHD is nothing but a neurological condition that has a mismatch with the educational system that we currently mm. go So if you could imagine a school in which you went from one subject to another every five minutes, there was lots of noise everywhere, to keep your attention and you were forced to move, what kind of grades do you think your ADHD kids would be making? Well, they'd be straight A's, right? And we'd be having to find medications for the future accountants and scientists, right? <laughs> and you'd be saying, what's wrong with you? Why can't you go from one thing to another? And these kids, that's the message they get. Why can't you sit still for 45 minutes when there's absolutely nothing wrong with it? Mm -hmm. They just are in the wrong environment. But unfortunately, you do have to function in that society. That's where the functioning part of psychiatric illnesses comes in. And that's where medications can definitely be helpful. But for ADHD, that's really one of those things where it's really a very simple diagnosis. But because children only have so many ways in which they can communicate with you, a lot of things look like ADHD, so it's misdiagnosed all the time. So there's certainly a truth to it being overdiagnosed and too many kids aren't stimulants. And then stimulants can make other psychiatric illness wor illnesses worse. But when you have it right, you should, you should try one amphetamine. 70% of the time, you're gonna, it's going to be a miracle cure. You grab the, other, the kids that did not respond. You put them on the medication, 70% of them. That means that after two medication trials, nine out of 10, more than nine out of 10 kids will get better with minimal side effects. And if they do not, Chances are they don't have ADHD. So to me, ADHD is one of those questions that, that, that is simple to answer and people make too big a deal out of it. You just put them on a medication trial is what I always sit there and say. But that's not the answer. That's not the overall answer. It's just the simple stopgap measure. Medications to me are a tool like anything else. But ADHD is a perfect example. They've done lots of studies that show that you can have behavioral interventions with ADHD. You can have all kinds of things, but nothing seems to work as well as the combination of medications and therapy and other therapeutic interventions. The reason for that is that underlying a lot of psychiatric illnesses is what you call the, what did you call it, the governor? Mm -hmm. the, the technical term for it is called the executive function. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's found here in the front of your brain, and it's one of the, the latest things to develop in our brain as evolution came around. And it helps us organize everything, keeps us from doing things. And so the impulsiveness is what gets us into trouble. That is the aspect of ADHD that gets you into trouble when you talk when you know you're not supposed to, 
when you steal when you know you're not supposed to, when you do all kinds of things when you know you're not supposed to, you do it before you think about it. Behavioral interventions that you want to use as therapy only work if your brake system in your car works well enough. So you can try real techniques as you want, but if you cannot get that part of the brain to work better, and medication is not the only way you can do that, by the way, you know, but you have to get that part of the brain to work well in order for any behavioral interventions to work after that. Luckily, medications are one tool. Uh, neurobehavioral feedback is another tool. And another underutilized tool for ADHD is exercise. We used to think that exercise was like, how many of you guys have heard the story of, well, you know, he doesn't really have ADHD because he does really well during football season because he wants to play football, so he's motivated to do well. And, and in reality, there's some truth to that. It's got construct validity is what we call it in, in research, you know. Yeah, it makes sense that if, you know, it's something that theory makes sense. If somebody's motivated, they can overcome their ADHD. However, the reverse was actually true. When they did the studies, they found out that if you keep your heart rate past 120, we target 120% of your target heart rate, which for most adolescents hits around 115, 120. So if you keep your heart rate above 115 and 120 for more than 30 minutes, you get the benefits just like if you had taken a stimulant for like a day and a half. So if you, during football seasons, they're doing that every single day. So do they actually need medications during football season? No. So football itself was treating the ADHD. That's why their grades improved, not because of the motivation, but the other way. And so, you know, that's one thing. Uh, sometimes I've seen some kids get well on diets because the gut biome is so important for lots of things, autism, ADHD. These are the kinds of things that people neglect all the time. So I think that that's, that's a very interesting thing uh, about medication. The medications are a tool like anything else. Uh, that's one of the struggles that I have, David, and I don't know if you have that too, I'm sure in your practice where you prescribe something, then people don't do it, mm -hmm. right? And then you tell them, I said, well, look, or they want to stay away from something. I don't want you to put that zappy thing on me, or I don't want you to crack my bones. I don't want you to do these things. And... To me, that's the same struggle that I have in where people have such a bad view of what medications are instead of understanding them for what they can be. They're a tool like anything else. Behavioral therapy, that's a tool. So if you don't have the right therapist who knows what they're doing, they're not going to be able to help you. If you have, so when you try medications, number one, do you have the right diagnosis? Do you have the right dose? Do you have the right medication? That's the only way that it's going to help. But it's, if there's a mismatch, it's not going to help. It can actually make things worse. So just like therapy is a tool, medications are a tool, exercise are a tool, diet is a tool, all of those things are tools. And you should be no more afraid of one than the other. You know, medications are just one aspect of the way somebody can get better. Well, and I think a little bit of that, like we always talk, and I'm sure you hear this too, is people want a magic bullet. No. They just want to show up and they want to say, hey, can you just give me something that I can give him? So I don't have to do anything else. Like, just take that and then we're going to be good. And it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. I mean, me and Nick, we constantly preach about multi-therapeutic approaches, using the tools that you have at your capacity, like you're just saying. And it's no different for people that have behavioral mental health, right? Like, there is a, there's a set of tools. And as a patient, you have a responsibility to try, like you're saying, to find somebody you can work with that correctly helps you implement these things in the right capacity for you, because I'm sure it's different for a patient, mm -hmm. of, okay, you got to do these things, and then as they synergistically start to work together and you find a rhythm, right? Yep. Where you start to see, oh, look at the changes now. Well, what are you doing? Well, I'm doing this, 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 and this. And like you're saying, some people, you just can't get them to even use all their tools. They just want the easy way out. Just give me a pill or just give me this. So I could totally see that, man. You know, it's funny because – I watched my brother struggle, but then I was in grad school and I had a, a bunch of really good friends that had horrible ADHD, but they figured out how to use it as a tool. Like you were talking like mm -hmm. the OCD with the accountant. The advantages. They learned how to channel their impulsiveness, use the medication when they needed to to study, right? Mm -hmm. But they didn't struggle because they learned that rhythm. They exercised, they ate well, they did all these things. And they're doctors now. I mean, they were able to function with that. 
but you're saying it's not necessarily a handicap. It's just being able to figure out how to utilize that based off the way your brain is functioning. Right? Yeah. Everything has its advantage for, or else it wouldn't have stuck around in the evolution of, of mankind and how we are. It wouldn't have stuck around. E- even the, even something as detrimental as schizophrenia, when you see a beautiful mind, if you guys remember that movie, one of the, one of the things that goes wrong in schizophrenia is your brain it's advantageous when you get somebody whose brain can take two things that are very different and see the relationship between them. Mm-hmm. That, from an outsider's point of view, when you do that in a positive way, you're called brilliant. You're called an Einstein, right? But when that connection occurs and it doesn't make any sense and it's actually not true, you're called delusional. But the process is still the same, that assigning a lot of emotional weight to an idea can be very beneficial in certain situations, but can also lead to what we call delusions. And so these are the things that are the normal things that kind of go out of control. And for example, one of the things that I liked about what you said about your, your, these people that you see that have learned to see the advantages of what they have going on with them and learning how to incorporate it into their lives to be something positive, it goes both ways. You can do it to help you. You can also... It also gets in the way of you getting that magic bullet because they're all seeking that magic bullet. They think that if I go in there and break the hold of their depression, so I'm going to go in there, give them a medication that can help reset all their chemicals, that that's going to change their habit of sitting in their room, listening to bad music and writing bad poetry. That's not going to change that. You, the, and until you change that behavior, people are always asking me, well, how long should I stay on the antidepressant? I said, well, after we get the right dose and you're starting to feel better, now the real struggle comes in, right? Just like after I treated your ADHD and got the impulse control under control, now the behavioral therapy arm of it has to come in. Now the therapy comes in. Now you have to exercise. Now you have to change all the things that kept you depressed. So the the medication is just there to get you feeling better, but you have to change all these other things in order to get better. My analogy that I like to give is medications, another way of looking at them, there's two ways of looking at them. One of the, one, in this case, what, what you're asking specifically is that they're kind of like the assisted weights when you do pull-ups, mm-hmm. you know, and you, mm-hmm. you use the medication. Medications are nothing but, okay, now we're going to get your prefrontal cortex to work a little bit better, but let's say you weigh 180 pounds. I'm going to take, a, with this medication, I'm taking 100 pounds off of you. Now let's go through the motions. Now let's start doing the behavior that we need you to do. Now let's start paying attention to Let's start focusing. Let's see how this feels. Now I'm going to cut the medication a little bit. I'm going to take it from 100. I'm going to take it down to 80. Then I'm going to take it down to 40. And you work. And when you're depressed, let's get out there. Let's get out of the room. Let's start exercising. Let's start doing these things. I'm going to be cutting back. And I'm going to leave the medication the same. And as those muscles build up, as that behavior changes, that's what's once you finally get that into a good rhythm, then you start pulling back the medications. You take the weight assistance off until you're doing it by yourself. Once that behavior has changed and you're doing it by itself, and that can take, I usually give six months or a year. I tell a year, why? And they say, why so long? How long did it take you to get to the state where you were at? So it took you two to three years to get there. Of course, it's going to take you a year to get back. I'm pretty sure you guys went into similar situations when you're describing it to people. And do I really have to make all these medications, all these changes in my, my lifestyle? Well, yeah. I said, because the answer when you come see somebody for a psychiatry is pretty much the same that if, if you go to see an internal medicine person. You want to stop diabetes? How many people are actually going to eat well, sleep well? In psychiatry, it's the same thing. You want to stop a lot of psychiatric illnesses except for schizophrenia, Almost everybody can get off medications if you eat well, sleep well. If you go ahead and learn mindfulness techniques, if you just sign up and get on the idea of mindfulness from the beginning and you exercise, if you do all these things together, most you'll either be able to lower your doses of psychiatric medications that you're on or not need them all together. And that goes the same for diabetes because I used to, be pre-diabetic before I got on the intermittent fasting and keto and all that kind of stuff. And that got rid of my insulin resistance. But you have to make 
the behavioral changes. You can't just, these, these medications that we give you are not magic bullets. They don't change your personality. They don't change your behavior habits. That's all up to you. I love how you painted that. And I just being uh, in a different field of, of medicine, obviously, it's funny how people come in or not funny. It's just, it's the paradigm of people coming in and they, they're tied to their medication and you're speaking to things in a more holistic kind of way. So do you, do you feel like you share the viewpoint that you have with most of your colleagues or do you feel like you are sort of on the outside coaching internally to, to share with other colleagues? Like where, where do you sit in the, in the realm of uh, psychiatry uh, bringing in the, the, the behavioral changes? It's interesting. There's certainly, there's been a big push over the last three decades to go to a biopsychosocial model. Mm-hmm. And everybody gets pushed that way. Um, however, I think the, and I think everybody certainly thinks that way. Most psychiatrists nowadays are at the point where they sit there and say, medications are not the only answer. They you need to have therapy. They go as far as therapy. And then of course you have to reduce your social stressors because you have to look at the social environment. And you pay lip service to it, though, but I see a lot of psychiatrists because it's just the, also the economics of the situation, right? Nobody's going to pay a psychiatrist to do therapy with you, so you have to farm that out. Nobody's going to pay a psychiatrist to talk about your diet with you, so you have to farm that out. And so you have a specific amount of time you spend with the patient, so you mainly concentrate on the medications. But I certainly spend time talking to the patients about, well, you know, you have to, this is going to be okay, but you're going to have to, uh, do exercise, but I only get them in inpatient settings. So I'm kind of off on an island. Pretty much everybody understands the importance of diet and sleep. The places where I think I'm off on an island is more about uh, the gut biome, about the importance of diet, about the importance of bringing inflammation down. Uh, one of my old um, mentors, Dr. Ray Zahn, he comes out and he's CNN psychiatrist. He's that guy that you see on CNN when they interview. They need a psychiatric opinion, they go get him. And he's very big into alternative ways of looking at depression because his research is all about body temperature. Because his question, we used to have discussions about, well, what was the evolutionary evolutionary advantage that led to us having these psychiatric illness? Like, where did depression come from? Where did bipolar come from? Where did schizophrenia come from? And a lot of psychiatrists don't spend time thinking about these things. That's what that's what is really the problem is they just see it as a it's just an illness and I give you medication and that's it. And that's not going to solve, as you guys know, that's not going to solve anything. You're in, mm-hmm. and, and chiropractic, in the chiropractic field, and the person keeps on doing the same thing that knocks them out, all, out of alignment all the time, what good does it do for you to sit there and put them back in alignment every single week? Mm-hmm. You know, they're not making an effort to change what is causing it. Then that's the same thing in psychiatry. You know, in psychiatry, what good is it going to do if you don't recognize what you have, if you don't change the things that brought you into it? Because there's an interesting theory also about psychiatric illnesses that we didn't have as many psychiatric illnesses when we didn't have the advent of technology. Because we used to have the sun and, and the moon to let us know when it was time to go to sleep, let us know when it was time to wake up. So everything was much better in train. So there's... There's certainly a theory that a lot of the mood disorders are brought about because of modern technology, because we got away from the natural things that for millions of years were telling us how to behave, how to be in the world, and we're getting away from that. So as we become disconnected from it, you're seeing the popping up of more mood disorders. Now, that's also an interesting theory that very few people think about. But that's what I'm saying. Like you're saying, I'm kind of on the outside looking in with a lot of this uh, you want to take, you want you know the gut biome. I think is very important, and bringing inflammation down, um, and the importance of all, all the aspects of health. Mm-hmm. I know that if I don't get if I don't get my chiropractic adjustment at least once every two weeks, I start becoming it starts affecting. I start becoming more irritable. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know? that's so true. I, I love how you're speaking on all this this information because it's it's extremely refreshing to to have you know colleagues in different fields of medicine where we're we're talking about or more of a unification a holistic approach and and on that note I would love to hear your thoughts on 
like the microglial, the immune system of the brain and the neuroinflammation and, and what kind of, you mentioned, you brought up the microbiome. If you can kind of speak to neuroinflammation uh, in the microbiome and, and how you see that play out for some of these uh, mental illnesses. You know, it, it's very interesting that the inflammatory pathway is a common pathway and the immune system is a common pathway for lots of psychiatric illnesses. Because in reality, depression is sick behavior that kind of gets out of control. All the same inflammatory cytokines, now we're getting to the fancy word, but the, the parts of the immune system that generally tend to fight things are elevated when you're depressed. So it creates inflammation all over your body, which is why alternative treatments for depression come down in the forms of altering body temperatures, kind of getting the inflammatory pathways down. There's been a lot of research recently, even in something as genetic and as, as deeply ingrained as schizophrenia. Because schizophrenia is one of those where you're talking about that there's actually something more than just a regular psychiatric illness. It actually is a dementia process where you're losing a lot of brain cells. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of the inflammation that goes on because there's a lot, when you're under high stress, a lot of your neurons are firing. So it's bathing your neurons in lots of chemicals, which in certain ways can help certain neurons connect to other neurons and help us with memory, help us with all kinds of things. But if it's too out of dysregulated, if the anxiety is too high, your stress hormones are too high, it can create a bath in the brain that kills brain cells. So that's why it's no surprise that when they did this research about 15 years ago, when you look at the brain of somebody with schizophrenia that's never been treated compared to somebody with bipolar, with depression, and then a quote-unquote whatever a normal brain is, but none of them have seen medications. The people with schizophrenia doesn't even look like a normal brain. Mm-hmm. lost all kinds of brain cells. Bipolar, which is the next worst illness that you can get, loses a lot of brain cells and statistically significant from a normal brain, but even depression loses brain cells. So one of the interesting things when you're looking at what antidepressants do is they bring this inflammatory process under control. And so it actually functions like a brain fertilizer. That's another thing that they found in vitro, which means when you're looking at just little nerve, nerves under the microscope, they find that it encourages brain cell growth. And they're actually starting to use it early on in dementia to kind of protect against dementia as well, the antidepressants. Um, so what you can do, what, what, another thing that's been found is if you use anti-inflammatories, okay? And this is where I'm just talking about medications that have been looked at. My brain automatically popped. So I know in my own body that when I'm in keto, and I'm an intermittent fasting, guess what? All those same inflammatory pathways are down. Mm-hmm. So what if somebody with schizophrenia or some of these psychiatric illnesses, if you, if you got them to adopt a keto lifestyle and intermittent fasting and brought the inflammatory process under control, you could control some of this, you know, this brain loss that occurs naturally. Uh, because I've never run, I've hardly ever run into diets that are bad for people in general. Uh, that's why I'm always telling patients that they could try it. But now I really push intermittent fasting with them, you know, and, and tell them, I said, you know, this is, this is a good way to control that inflammation and kind of keep these illnesses that are so tied into our immune system. And, and even going to gut biome, you know, of all the psychiatric illnesses, there's two that have always stood out that are connected to the gut very clearly. And even the mainstream doctors know this, right, which is, for example, ulcerative colitis or any kind of GI inflammatory thing has always been tied with high levels of anxiety, or, you know, skin rashes and all kinds of other things that occur that show that it's a systemic process, not just stuck in gut, but it's also tied into psychiatry. The other one is uh, autism. Where autism, there's a lot of research that shows it's, it's kind of like their whole gut biome is really reacting to all kinds of, of, of irritants in an abnormal way that normally don't bother other people, bother kids with autism. And when you can control their gut biome, generally their behaviors improve overall, where they're less aggressive. Well, I'd like to speak to that last part, just a personal story on my end. I've been seeing an autistic, uh, he's in his 
early 20s now, but I've probably been seeing him for like the last five to six years. And I've seen him at his worst when he started with me, when he was eating horribly, he was always bloated. You could tell he was inflamed, right? He was retaining fluid because the inflammation, you know, didn't exercise, none of this stuff. I've seen this kid completely transform. Okay, he still takes medication. He needs medication. It's a tool. I've seen him completely transform over the past six years to where he eats right now. Uh, he was gluten intolerant. We corrected that issue. He stays away from it. The inflammation's massively down. He doesn't have the bloating feeling. He looks lean and ripped now. He exercises. He's going to, he's going to college now. He's living on his own. And these are things that six years ago would have been unheard of for this child. Wow. Well, what was the difference? All he was doing was the medication before. Mm -hmm. And then his, his, his family brought him in to me and says, what else can we be doing? So I gave him the holistic approach. And I've watched this kid just evolve, man, over the past six years. It just blows my mind. I mean, he could barely just talk to me and have conversations. And now I can sit there and just go back and forth with him. And it's like a different person. That's awesome. So. You know, what Dr. Gaetan is speaking to is absolutely true. I mean, you've got to be doing all the, all the, the, the basic foundational things that give us vitality so that we're not running uphill all the time because there isn't a magic pill, as he's saying, as we know. But when you get all these things to work synergistically, it's magical to see the changes that can progress over time. That's incredible. I mean, all that you're sharing today and, and David, you throwing in those stories, I mean, it, it should spark hope for anyone listening that, you know, we, we all, to some degree, in that you mentioned the technology, uh, how it's affecting mental illness, but we all, to some degree, are being impacted uh, mentally. You know, we're from a performance level, let's say on the higher end right down to depression, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia, autistic. And there is a common theme. It's this chronic inflammatory state that we do find ourselves in. Um, and there's so many things that we can do to mitigate the, uh, this reality. And, and at the same time, so many people are really stuck in their story, their behavior, their, their environment. And, and so I love, I love hearing you speak to this journey that, that you help people move through. And, and it just goes to show like this is the future of in a truly integrated model where people can work with a psychiatrist and really like problem solve, calming things down so that they can move into behavioral changes. They can move into the dietary changes. They can move into neurofeedback and, you know, ev everything else that's available to people. And, my goodness, like it just, it should give us all hope uh, as doctors, but also as you know, parents, friends, loved ones, friends, communities, that there, there are opportunities for massive, massive healing and we don't have to live with the diagnosis. And so I am going to bring this to a question that is where, at what point do you help people redefine that attachment to a diagnosis? Because I, there, I know so many people that get so attached to it that it becomes part of the illness that they can't see themselves as anything different. So if you could speak to that as well. Well, that's part of the reason why I went to child psychiatry, actually. When I was an adult psychiatrist, there's a few things that I learned that are, that are telling. Number one is that the more episodes you have of a specific illness, the more likely you are to recur episodes in the future. So... By the time you've had one full depressive episode or one full manic episode, your chances of having, or a psychotic break, your chances of having another one the rest of your life go to 50%. By the time you've had two of them, your chances of having another one are 75%. By the time you've had three full episodes, your chances of, of having another depressive episode the rest of your life is over 90%. So... By the time you're 28, on average, and by well, there are two statistics. One is how many, what would you guys guess is the average amount of episodes you have before you go get psychiatric help for depression? Four or five, maybe? Yeah, you're exactly right. Was it was like 3.7, I think is what it was, and the average age was like 27 or 28 when you finally go see a psychiatrist medications for depression that tends to start a little bit later mm. in your you know late teens early 20s but you've had three so what does that mean that means that whenever patients ask you well, i'm gonna have to take the medications the rest of my life 
chances are you're going to have to come in and out of medications the rest of your life because you've gotten to the point where your brain has lost so much brain cells that you are, it's kind of like somebody who is diabetic waiting till all their insulin is gone to come get on medications. It's kind of a little too late now when you've exhausted all your, all your pancreas. Um, so I decided, well, that's the number one thing. That, again, that goes for all the psychiatric illnesses. So I said, I need to catch them before they get here. So that's one of the reasons I went into child psychiatry. So why are we waiting? Why aren't we going to them? And then people are like, well, we don't have any, any research that says these medic what are the long-term effects of these medications. And parents always come back to them and say, yes, we don't have any research as to what the long-term effects are, but we have research that shows what happens if you don't treat these things and you've had three or four episodes, your child would need medications the rest of the life when they're adults. My goal of going to child psychiatry is to teach people about these, these pathways and to stop them so that once you've had one episode, that's enough. Find a medication that works for you, stop it before it gets bad. And then once you recognize how you get depressed, once you start seeing your first, because everybody gets depressed a little bit differently. Somebody, some people lose energy first. Some people start having problems concentrating, some people can't sleep. Once you see your first signs, you increase your exercise regimen, you make sure you're sleeping well, and you go see your therapist. You get all of that done, you won't have a full episode. You won't even need the medicine. But just in case those three things didn't work and you're still getting depressed and you changed everything, then you bring out the, the antidepressant before you have a full episode. And you don't let yourself lose all these brain cells. Mm -hmm. you know? And so those are the kinds of things that I think that's, that's the challenge is to, is to get in there early to change the paradigm so that people stop thinking of themselves as their illnesses. So I like to teach people what I, I even use with the parents. I said, I'm just interested in what the behavioral lesion for your child is. Let's break it down. Forget bipolar, forget all that kind of stuff. I said, your child may have bipolar, schmipolar. I don't care. What I care about is that, are they having problems with their impulse control? And are they having problems with their emotional regulation? Because there's lots of reasons that you could have emotional dysregulation issues. Maybe when you were a child, you were poorly attached and you never learned how to control your temper because your parents couldn't control their own temper. So it's a little bit of a learned behavior. Maybe, you know, you have, yes, you may have some fluctuating internal emotional states uh, because, you know, you have the genetics for bipolar disorder. Whatever it is that's causing it, you start to teach people to think of their issues as the behavior because one of the biggest struggles is getting them to think of themselves. Well, you, you guys know this when you try to teach mindfulness is just, the, that's why mindfulness is so powerful in all these psychiatric illnesses is because it gets people to recognize that they are not their behaviors. They are not their feelings and they are not their thoughts. They're the person behind all those things. So especially in psychiatry, you, it's important not to you think of yourself as I am bipolar. I am ADHD. No, I at times have issues controlling my impulses and I at times have issues controlling my emotional states and my sleep-wake cycles. So once you start getting them to look at the behavior, now you start, can start asking them, what are you doing to fix those behaviors aside from medication? Once you get all those under control, everything else is fine, but you're not all those things. Mm. Oh man, that was beautiful. Uh, that was so good. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I keep thinking like, I, I wish there was more of you in the world, <laughs> for one, because what you're teaching, I mean, you're teaching at the, at the right time of uh, someone's life cycle, you got to teach this stuff young, you're teaching them all the right tools, when they're in, in the midst of these experiences, you know, just letting someone be themselves, despite having these behaviors, these, these learned behaviors, environmental, whatever the case may be that's a huge weight off someone's shoulders that they've probably been carrying around for, you know, if they don't get this kind of information for 30, 40 years. My, my hope is that people really tune into this episode and feel the gravity of this information and that there's a way through. And it's, it gives, I mean, you give me shivers when you're speaking on this because this is the hope that people need to know about. They need to know that there's doctors like you that can support from medication right to the finish line um, on strategies for, for, you know, reversing these things and, and getting into a place where this no longer has to dictate their, their lives or their future. It's, it's such a powerful message that you're sharing. 
so grateful for you. Thanks. Yeah. And no, I can't help but think is that he's talking about this last piece. And I just want to add this is, and you mentioned it earlier, what I want our listeners to really listen to, and Dr. Gaetan is going to probably second me here. If you've already had somebody as gifted as this guy showing you the path to help you or a loved one or your child, are you doing everything that they're asking you to do? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Nick, we see this, right? We can give the answers, but you've got to like, you got to sign up. You've got to be all in. And yep. unless you've tried it all and done it, you can't have any kind of judgment and say, oh, it doesn't work. Because a lot of people, they don't do the whole bit, yeah. right? They cherry pick. So I would challenge our listeners, if you've already been through this or you're going through it, are you really doing everything you need to be doing? Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, the, the biggest example of that that I can think of that jumps to my mind is all the people who come into me with anxiety. Because even a classically trained psychiatrist who doesn't think about all these other issues uh, like I like to and, and philosophize about these things is the gold standard of treatment for anxiety disorders is therapy. And more and more it's mindfulness techniques, right? So that's one specific place in which even the textbooks for psychiatrists, for doctors that are supposed to be all about medications, you'll find most of them tell you, well, and, and that's the one place where they run to mind altering medications and mood altering medications. Cause that's where the benzodiazepines are just running rampant is that everybody just wants that magic pill. They want it to be high and, and they don't want to look at the fact that the hard work that is required, the mental shift that is required to go to mindfulness, to the everyday, to sitting down and doing the breathing techniques in the morning and putting down the tapes and expecting and not expecting the solution to come till six months down the line, a year down the line. My wife herself, you know, has struggled with anxiety issues for a long time. And she is night and day once she started doing the mindfulness. She's the one who started me, even even though I don't have those issues. I just started seeing the benefit of looking at things from a mindfulness perspective and learning it. Mindfulness to me is, and that's from Dr. Rezan, because he used to be onto research with all the monks. He used to look at them and say, well, why can they control their heart rate? How can they control all these kinds of things? And it was all mindfulness. And when you're mindful, it's very hard to have any anxiety whatsoever. But how many people are willing to do that work? How, we can't even get them to do it for things they can measure like diabetes because how many of them want to give up their gorditas or their weekend meals <laughs> and stuff like that, you know, their enchiladas. They, they don't want to give up their enchiladas, you know? And so, therefore, they'd rather have a pill that can make up for the difference. And that's how come we stay in business, you know? A lot of Western medicine, we have answers for bacterial infections. We have answers for a lot of things. But where we are woefully inadequate in Western and, and Eastern medicine is much better at is by the inflammatory, the immunological, the viral, the chronic kind of things. And that's where we have to understand what our limitations are and what our research is good for and what it's not good for. There's a whole field of treatment out there that is that can be beneficial. And psychiatry has to be in that realm a lot more than regular medical illnesses like hypertension, diabetes, but they're all so tied in. If you're just treating the biological aspect of it, you're missing out on a whole lot of things and you're missing a lot of, the, a lot of therapy paradigms that could be helpful. Because like I said earlier, I've yet to run into very many diets that are really unhealthy for you. Why don't you try it and see if you get better? I always tell people and everybody can just try different things and uh, God forbid that you actually get a full night's sleep as an American and not sit, and let, I sit up late at night Netflix binge watching, which I still do. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's not good for me, but I do it anyways, right? So yeah. even us who are treaters, you know, I always tell people, it's like, look, you look at it. I, I said earlier, you just got to get there early because by the time you have three episodes, it's too late. You're going to be taking medication the rest of your life. The other one is in order for people to get better, you got to get them to take your medication. So that's another thing. When you can get them to only have to take medications once a day, your chances of people being compliant go up tremendously and your chances of them getting better go up tremendously. But most people are not after that. They're after the altered state. So when you look at an adult psychiatric medications, they're usually on like 10 medications and they take them three times a day. Why? Mm -hmm. Because they're actually treating themselves to get better? No. 
because they're looking for an altered state. And you try to change that adult's medication so they're taking it to once a day, even when you tell them that research shows that once a day is fine, they'll, they'll, they'll fire you because they don't want to hear that the solution, and, and, and I personally, I tell them, and then when I explain this part to them, they, they think I'm crazy. I sit there and said, look, these medications, I like to give them once a day, preferably at night, because most of them, half-life, could get out of your body by 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. The general way of looking at medications, and for sure, you can't do that with hypertension. For hypertension, your medication has to be in your system the whole time, or your hypertension will come back. In psychiatry, it's not that way. That's why it's different from regular medications. It's got its own field. You, you take that medication, you give your brain a signal. That signal tells your brain to make certain changes in the rest of your brain so that different parts of the brain will function differently. And it takes about a week or two weeks to take that full effect. You only need to have that signal once a day. So it doesn't matter if the medication is not there the rest of the day. So if it makes you sleepy, great. You take it at night, so by the time you wake up in the morning, you're okay. And then if your behavior changes the rest of your day, I know it's because that medication made the appropriate changes. Whereas if you're taking that medication two or three times a day, you may just be acting okay because it's making you a little groggy or it's bringing down some of your anxiety and side effects. But that's not going to fix you. Well, and I've seen that. I've seen kids on different medications. Mm-hmm. They're like zombies yeah. during the day. Now, and then parents and teachers are like, they're doing great. Yeah, Their because they're are not horrible. saying anything. Yeah, because they're not acting that. Yes. And I've seen, like, I've seen, well, you've seen it, right, Nick? I mean, you've seen some of these kids. It's crazy. And that's where we get the bad rap as psychiatrists because so much of society pushes us to get kids to that stage. And mm-hmm. then we think they're doing better because we have them as zombies or we have them knocked out. And then the problem becomes is that your body gets used to those anxiolytic effects. Your body gets used to those drowsy effects and then the medication no longer works and the kid is back to acting the way he was before because you're not actually treating the underlying disorder that's why if you see a psychiatrist the best thing you can ask for is to try to have all medications only be given once a day because it improves the chances of giving it to them heck i can't i'm a doctor and i can't even get my kid to take her bid dosing god forbid if the antibiotic is amoxicillin you have to take it three times a day how many of you guys are good at getting your kid to take just for 10 days, three times a day dosing? Mm-hmm. No. Twice a day dosing, maybe. And then even getting them to take it the whole full 10 days instead of forgetting here and there. So these kids who have to, in order to get better, have to take it every single day. It's best that it's once a day. Awesome. You know? That was a huge nugget right there. A massive nugget. Well, I, I can't help but feel how many people get stuck in this paradigm because there's there's such a huge sense of disconnect going on and then you brought in like the the studies and research on mindfulness and what is that that's reconnection and when people are constantly looking for an altered state they're trying to escape you know their reality their their version of reality and their identity that they see themselves uh, or or their lens through which they see the world and man that's that's a big part of that root cause that root cause trauma is just feeling massive disconnect and, and finding a way to escape that reality. So, and yeah, it puts, puts, it's encouraging. This conversation is encouraging people to get back in the driver's seat and not detach from life and find a way to reconnect. And there's lots of different ways to do that. And, you know, sometimes I, that starts with reconnecting to your, your diet plan, reconnecting to exercise, reconnecting to a community, reconnecting to your family or whatever that is. And it can start that process for you. And, and there's a role for, I mean, my goodness, there's a role for medication when the time is right. And, and let's just, you know, speak to the elephant in the room for some people, including myself as a doctor wanting to do everything natural. Sometimes there's a role here that, that we have to acknowledge. And so I appreciate all the, all the, the, these pieces that you brought into this conversation. Amazing. Well, we've got to give everybody their home play. And I think yep. mindfulness, I think, just because of the theme of the episode today is you know, if you're struggling and this, a lot of the things that we're speaking to today and that piece is missing for you, where would you tell them just to get started with the mindfulness? It's an easy way to do that. I, li- I personally like the app headspace.com. Mm. One of my favorites. I mean, there's lots of different ones out there, but I also tell people uh, it's simple just to go to YouTube and put relaxation techniques, mindfulness techniques, because there's for each and every one of us, there's a different voice, right? Like, for me, nothing drives me up the wall more than somebody speaking with the mindfulness voice of the, the wow. 
want you to take a deep breath, and I want you to picture yourself going down the stairs. You know, as soon as I hear that, I get disconnected. Talk about disconnection. So I like, I like mine. I like Headspace because it's just a that guy with a British, cool British accent just talking to you matter of factly, very plainly. He doesn't alter his voice, but that works for me. Some people love that that mindfulness voice and that hypnotic trance voice and that's what will work for them so i would challenge people to just like i say if you're going to try medications try two or three date them don't marry them don't get stuck in the one thing that you're trying you try different things and then you see which one is treat you well and you keep dating that medicine until you may eventually marry them same thing with mindfulness techniques download headspace download one of the other ones and then see which one you jive with better and just start that way. Then you can start reading the books on it and stuff like that. But in reality, let's talk about the elephant in the room. It's all based on fear. And fear is one of our primary mechanisms in our brain that hits all the chemicals that really causes a lot of problems. And fear, we, we respond to it either by fighting it or like you're saying, dissociating it from it. So most of our lives are spent disconnecting away from the things that cause us fear and using that to help us. So in reality, a lot of the path to health could be what you just said. We, could, we should really get together and write a book of saying uh, the road from, from um, I was just thinking about that, that connection from mindlessness to mindfulness. You know, so going from mindlessness to mindfulness, because in reality, that's all we're looking for. We're on our phone to become mindless. We're on the the uh, internet to become mindless. We're watching TV to become mindless. We are listening to music to be mindless. We're doing everything we can to avoid being mindful. That's why I think mindfulness is the crux of most health mm. in the world. You know, we can all, and then we all fill in our little expertise to get people to be able to stay present in the moment, be happy with what they have. And at the end, everything else will be secondary. You know, Love it. Yeah. I've got the end of that title of the book, mindless to mindful to mind free. There we go. There he is. Right. Yeah. It's already happening, buddy. It is happening. So write that book because we need to read it. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, thank you so much for all your wisdom. Uh, it, it, this was this was mind opening for me, mind freeing for me. It was it was such a a great conversation, such an important one for so many of our listeners. So I really appreciate you bringing in all your knowledge and wisdom today. Thank you for the chance to be able to speak to everybody and uh, trot out these ideas of mine that I have. You know, and, uh, be able to collaborate with other people from uh, different. Uh, disciplines and you know i think that's the best thing for everybody thank you brother thanks you brought it man mic drop thank you (laughs) total mic drop yeah we're fist pumping right now (laughs) awesome all right guys all the best lots of love thank you brother bye thanks for listening if you enjoyed today's podcast please be sure to subscribe to the dr dads and share with your family and friends you can also follow and interact with Dr. Nick and Dr. David on Facebook and Instagram for a daily dose of inspiration and the latest in health and wellness. Be well.